My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and of course, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. Now, we have been speaking with a cadre, I think that's the right word, a group of bold thinkers. And today we're going to go into the world of politics and talk about you know, what it takes to succeed in politics with somebody who really understands it. And the person who I have here to talk about it is Max Rose. Max Rose is a Democrat who represented New York's 11th congressional district from 2019 to 2021. And he's right now running for his old seat because he lost it in the last election. Now, Max earned a bachelor's degree in history from Wesleyan and a master's in science and philosophy and public policy from the London School of Economics. After returning from the U.S., he enlisted in the Army and he served for five years in the 1st Armored Division. During his time in the military, he earned his Ranger certification and received a Bronze Star, Purple Heart, and Combat Infantry badge. He also spent a year in Afghanistan from 2012 to 2013 as a Combat Infantry Officer. Now, following his term in Congress, Max served in the Biden administration as the senior advisor on COVID to the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, and he was responsible for coordinating the Department of Defense's internal COVID response, as well as to support the national and global effort. Now, this is a guy who has done a lot of public service. He has lived his life for others, and he's, you know, had a lot of success. And so this is a conversation that is a little different than the usual because Max is, he can't corral Max in an interview. He's going to take you where he wants to go. And I like that actually. He, as you'll see, he's very happy to tell me I'm wrong. And what we're going to do is really talk about a couple of different things. In this week's episode, Max is going to talk about his journey in the military and what he learned and how he applies that thinking to basically how we think about a government. So it's really about, you know, the, the military as an institution and how it is effective and the decision-making is effective and the power that it has and how we can then apply that thinking in the rest of government. And then next week, we'll get into some of his thoughts on serving in Congress and how we get better people to serve in Congress and what kind of people are there and just generally like thinking about human capital in our public service sector, among many other things. So this week's going to be about Max's views on the structure of government, and next week's going to be about a little bit more about the politics part. Both are really fascinating. You're going to love him because he's a real person. Like, you know, he's just, I don't know. It's it's sort of just like having somebody who is very approachable, and he really is. He's a real person, but who is really smart too and can think about politics as somebody who's done it just like any other industry, but with the optimism of wanting to create a better country. So that's what we're going to talk about today. My small ask is, of course, because, you know, I'm just can't stop telling you how great it is. The merch, go to fomosapiens.com slash store for the FOMOS shop. And you can find there baseball caps and t-shirts and sweatshirts and all these other things. And if there's something that you would like to see that's not there, just shoot me a note at let's connect at patrickmcginnis.com. All right. Now that I've shamelessly plugged the old FOMO shop, it's time to turn to the interview. 
So, as you know, I like to start every interview with the same question, and I ask Max this. What's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? I would say definitively the decision to uh, to join the military. Uh, first of all, th- thanks for thanks for having me, buddy. Uh, this is this is we've already had a, a lot of fun previous to starting recording, and I suspect that's going to continue. But you know, what what's what was so interesting? I, I joined the military after I finished grad school at um, the London School of Economics, and it was the first decision I made where I was actually fundamentally rejecting the expert opinion I was receiving, mm. um, w- which was really hard. You know, the, it, it was, it was the, the first time in my life where my gut and I, I, I knew I wanted to do, I knew I had to do this down to my core, but I was getting that classic guidance, you know, what are you doing, man? Like you could write your ticket at Goldman, McKinsey, go to law school, like the classic kind of pathways of meritocracy that have been like, are tried and true, but I think we're also just you know, even more emboldened in the 21st century. Um, and then you, you kind of overlay that with the fact that, you know, I, I had kind of gone through very liberal institutions. You know, I'd, I went to Wesleyan, you know, my mother's a community college professor. Uh, you know, I grew up in New York City. Uh, LSE is not known for <laughs> anything but you know being a, a liberal institution as well and there there are still deeply built into society and our culture you know a lot of the remnants of the uh, post-vietnam war and the vietnam war where we connect military service with a belief in you know a jingoist militaristic foreign policy and so you get the i was getting these ridiculous questions could you kill someone do you believe with the war in iraq and it's it's you know that that'd be uh, you know the same as someone saying they want to join Goldman and you'd be like well do you honestly believe that subprime mortgages were ethical and you're like what are you talking about man what what did I what, what do I have to do with that what does my pathway have to do with that um, and then I I made the decision though to join and I enlisted but was really the I think the most fascinating part of that whole story was that the ways in which I internalized that very kind of elitist, meritocratic, um, left-leaning guidance was that also, if I did decide to join, I would be giving a gift to the military. I'd be the smartest one in the room. And what I encountered in the military was exactly the opposite. I was by far the dumbest person there. You know, I, in basic training, I'd never hunted. I'd never held a compass. I, you know, I was not kind of, you know, when you go to many other parts of the country, or people have hobbies, you know, uh, people work with their hands, people are extraordinarily active. My, fa- my father didn't have a hobby, you know, like, I never, you know, I never, you know, my, 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 my pops didn't know how to fix anything growing up. Like I never went hunting. I never camped. I never, all of these things that are such pillars of a normal, you know, what is it? In fact, if you were to look at the United States of America in the aggregate is a normal upbringing. I didn't experience uh, and it was hard. It was really, really, really hard. Um, and I'm still in the military today, and it remains hard. It never comes. It never has come naturally to me. Uh, but I, I truly feel blessed to have done it for the past 12 years. Feel blessed to continue doing it. Um, and it's uh, made me the the person I am today, and continues to make me the person I am today. Why'd you join in the first place? Like, what was that? 
that impetus to, because you're right, like you were educated in a series of institutions that gave you a set of tools that were easily monetizable in a certain level of society and space that would, you know, bring you money and riches and security and stuff. You went into a place where those things obviously have value, but where there's all these other things that you didn't have that you encountered. Well, I actually think that, so obviously service matters to me. And um, I, I was, you know, very much raised as a fourth, I'm a fourth generation New Yorker. And I, I was very much raised on still that kind of immigrant mythology about this country being amazing. You know, my great grandfather fled uh, anti-Semitism from Eastern Europe, came to New York City, built the diner, sold the diner way too early. He built uh, Kellogg's Diner in Williamsburg. That was the diner he built in 1928. Sold it in 1975 when they wow. were they were still selling, you know, cheap eggs and bacon to to gangsters and cops and uh, people locally. Now it's fifty dollars, you know, frittatas to hipsters and bankers. But you know, that, I could have had a self funded campaign, bro. Um, but the, the point being is that I was definitively took from that story a deep a, a deep sense of patriotism, you know. So I had that inside of me right, from a very young age. But there was also a, a sense that I had of rebelliousness and um, and wanting to push back on the grain of what I felt some of the stereotypes were that were emerging. Um, that I that I had also seen around me growing up, you know, this stereotype that uh, it's not the best and the brightest that joined the military. The stereotype that service in uniform isn't worthwhile, a worthwhile pursuit. Um, and and I deeply, deeply felt that I want to push back on that and and be and be a part of something much bigger than myself, and and start to give back to the country in a substantial way, in a manner that I felt the door was going to close, rightfully so. I mean, the door that the, the joining the military is something you can only do when you're young. But lastly, and I think that this is the point that I, um, we don't talk about nearly enough. People thank individuals all the time for going, joining the military, and they should. Right, like I, we all acknowledge that you know we don't want to go back to the days in which veterans were spit at. But I would like to see military service start to be looked at more in this country, the same way we look at it at Ivy League education. You know, no one thanks you for having gone to Harvard Business School. They understand why you did that from a sense of how to better yourself and you know move on to bigger, greater things in this world. The military, from a training standpoint from a maturation standpoint, gave me so much more than I could ever imagine having received in any other institution. I mean, I was 26 years old, leading a combat outpost, 30 US soldiers, 50, 60 Af Afghan National Army soldiers, when you know all of my peers, they weren't managing anything at that, at that stage. So from a purely like, unbelievable self-development opportunity it's unparalleled and there should be no shame in us talking about the fact that it's 
it's a tremendous opportunity that should be and is a highly competitive opportunity. And then you think about what the young service members, how much they are, the, the responsibilities they're given, who are not on the officer side. And so when we encounter these veterans on the outside world, I think the narrative largely should center around thank you for your service and can I get your contact information so that I can incorporate you into my network in the same manner that we treat well other well-credentialed individuals. Uh, and and I, I this dogma that I was surrounded by was completely anathema to everything I just said. That, that it, this this was easy. This was, yes, a sacrifice, but it was not one that would result in self-betterment. And, you know, that this weird notion we have that the military is filled with the poor and the uneducated and people who are not capable and it is could be that could not be farther from the truth. And so what was fascinating about this process, because I, I took the time to decide to enlist, I took my time with it. Um, and I talked to a lot of people. And in the process, I kind of got this tour of, you know, cultural elitist arrogance in the process that has led, I think, and fueled quite a lot of the divide in this country as well. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens? Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. What you're saying resonates with me because I think I, in my own way, had that education. I got to college. I didn't really know. I mean, I knew some ROTC people, you know, that were going to enter the military. But then you go to banking or something or you work in finance. And that's I didn't really meet anybody who had been in the military. And then when I got to grad school, when I got to HBS, there were a number of people at the school who had military training and they were a little older, but they have seen things. And they have led organizations and the leadership training that they got in the military combined with the fact that like, you, you know, we forget about this. Like the military is one of the most innovative, if not the most innovative organization in the world, the U.S. military. The amount of money, the amount of R&D that is happening, that is being invested there, it's incredible. And so you're right, like you can at a very young age do things that you would never get to do in other places. The idea of the military as an extraordinarily special institution is undeniably true. Mm -hmm. But what I think is dangerous and what we're mm -hmm. encountering right now is the fact that it, it cannot be the only special institution. And at, at this point, the Department of Defense yeah. 
is by, and I, this, this is not an exaggeration, it is the only operational body in the federal government. And so you have the military sending its people to HBS, the military inculcating its young people in a culture of attention to detail. You know, it's the the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the 2060s is a second lieutenant right now, right? It is, this is, is a first lieutenant right now. There's not, this is not an institution that can get its talent from elsewhere, right? And it's also a body that has, there's two sides of the coin to the military. One side is a deeply regimented orthodoxy, right? There's a manual for everything. There's a code for everything. There's a field manual for everything. Heck, during counterinsurgency, General Petraeus, you know, famously published, had published field manual 3-24, the first field manual for, you know, with a bibliography that, uh, actually talked about how to build a, a reconstruct a country, you know, the most holistic complex thing imaginable. But mm. the other side of the coin to the military is this sense that there's a right time to throw the field manual out. Now I uh, encountered this when I was serving as a senior advisor to the secretary of defense, uh, covering COVID operations. Um, you know, I, I came into the administration on the first day, January 20th, uh, at uh, right at noon. Uh, in fact, I, I had missed out on the fact that one of the only perks of being an ex-member of Congress is that you get two tickets to the inauguration for the rest of your life. So there were two empty seats at the Biden uh, inauguration that I guess my wife and I were supposed to be sitting at. But um, you know, the, the Secretary of Defense then followed me about seven days later, right? And uh, Secretary Lloyd Austin, incredibly, uh, incredible individual, just. Uh, so smart, retired four-star general, has seen everything in the military, everything in the world and well beyond. And he says, I want my first meeting to be about COVID. And so when the Secretary of Defense says he wants his first meeting on something, that happens you know, 15 minutes later, right? And so does this big meeting and he says to you know, the men and women in uniform, and these are a bunch of four-stars, an incredibly you know, intimidating moment, you know, we got to do something in the face of um, this incredibly, you know, deadly virus, this pandemic. And the military comes back within weeks with a plan to do something that we'd never done in the history of this country, which was to stand up these mass vaccination sites, partnering with all echelons of government, uniform and otherwise. And they operationalized it immediately, so quickly, so quickly. And it it strikes me that the Department of Health and Human Services for all the great extraordinary work they do, the Department of Education, uh, you know, the Department of Treasury. These bodies have devolved into strictly policymaking regulatory agencies that during a crisis, as we just saw, were, were incapable of becoming operational. Incapable. Um, and and I, I know I got off on a bit of a tangent there, but there's for all the ways in which we have, culturally speaking, I'm talking about elitist culture, looked at the military and looked mm-hmm. at service as something to be admired, something to that is to be applauded, but also something that is to be kept at a distance. Um, I think that there, there, there's some of these charities in many ways absolve people of thinking at a moment that they could learn something from the military. Uh, and we, we need to make that transition because there's just absolutely so much to be learned 
from it as an institution. FOMO. FOMO. You know, when I think about the difference between, and tell me if I'm right here, it's like government, first of all, government changes every four years, right? So these, there are careerist people who work in these, the bureaucracy, or if you're, you know, some people call it the deep state, (laughs) but you have these folks who are, you know, the bureaucrats, but you have these political points that come in and come out. The military is cohesive. It's not, it should not be a political organization. It's about an organization that endures and people move up the ranks and it stands apart or it should stand apart from politics. So you have the infrastructure is constantly in government, it's constantly changing in a sense, whereas in the military, it, it feels more stable and and therefore it's able to be more responsive. Is that is that a fair way to look at it or is that wrong? No, no it, it's there is no difference, structurally speaking, between the notion of the military answering up to politically appointed civilian leadership as well as any other civil service entity during doing the same. So, you know, the, the tracks of the military change dramatically at times according to uh, which president is in power or which political party is in power. Certainly, I think that the military, this military leadership distinctly understands the fact that um, the sign of a strong democracy is civilian leadership of the military and the men and women in uniform not becoming explicitly political, right? Which I think is the is the line you're referring right. to. But what I don't want, what I don't think anyone should think is that that means that, you know, uh, and uh, uh, Kissinger used to write a lot about this, that the bureaucracy, uniform or otherwise, actually exists as a separate arm of government with its own will, its own intention. And whether we're talking about the military or otherwise, that's not a good thing, right? Like we we need to make sure in this country that we can execute strong political transfers of power. And it it, it is so incredibly broken in this nation right now. So incredibly broken. You think about the fact that, you know, here we are, we're like a year and a half into the Biden administration and they still have not filled all of their politically appointed positions. I wrap, wrap your mind yeah. around that for a second, right? So what, what happens then is that there's created this enormous void that into that void steps, you know, entrepreneurial civil servants, uniformed or otherwise. And that's a, in the absence of anything else, that's a good thing. But it talk about the least like sexy thing to talk about, the least like interesting thing to 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 try to pursue reform around. But politics is not a bad thing. That's the will of the people. And but we've become so sclerotic in our ability institutionally to exercise it uh, that that it it, 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 it actually it, it appears to me to be an enormously dangerous thing. What was the book by Michael Lewis about the fact that basically, I think it was called like the fifth column. Is that yeah, right? Exactly. And the, the it, yeah, so I, I heard him on a podcast. I did not read the book, but I think I got the gist. And essentially, he says that, that there's a hollowing out of the capability of government. You have all these seats that are empty. And as we all know, whether it's a business or it's government, like when you don't have staff and you don't have the knowledge that's been built up over time, how can you respond, right? And so that's why we see 
failures in, in being able to, whether it's, you know, COVID or now there's a new epidemic, this monkeypox epidemic that we've been reading out in the papers. And it's like, we just went through a, a, a pandemic and yet it seems that, you know, people weren't ready for the next one and, and or the, the a, a, a hurricane or whatever it is. There's all the thing about the world that we live in is there's always going to be things that happen and there's always going to be a need for government to step in. But when you don't have the people and you don't have the decision-making behind it, then you can't address those problems. Right, I think that, the, that that nicely kind of brings the conversation to the point I was trying to make, perhaps unsuccessfully, which is that we need to start to consider how do we invest in our other institutions yeah. in the same way that the military has invested. And, and we as a society have collectively agreed to invest in our military. Otherwise, what's going to happen is behind the scenes, and this I swear to God is what's happening. Um, and by, by the way, when I talk about investing in our military, I mean uniform and otherwise. The civil servants... Yeah in the Department of Defense are extraordinary. Um, but, you know, you have uh, like the baby formula stuff, right? Behind the scenes, that's the military figuring that out. Uh, mm. Operation Warp Speed. Behind the scenes, that's the military, uh, fig you know, d doing a tremendous amount of that. And the list often goes on and on and on. Uh, you know, the and it, it's really important for us to think well, how, how do we make sure that we're investing in our other institutions in, in, in the same manner, investing in, in people when they enter the institution, investing in their development, uh, making sure that there's pride centered around it and, and, and you know, esprit de corps centered around it. Um, and in those instances, I, I truly do believe that government does not only have the potential to be a force for good, but also a force for massive innovation, you know, groundbreaking innovation. Uh, you know, we we and we we see hints of of brightness here. You know, I'm I'm really excited by the uh, uh, this ARPA E that that just got uh, announced. You know, that the 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 notion that, that there will be, or excuse me, ARPA H that there's going to be a, a DARPA for health. Uh, you I know, packed that for everybody who who may not know what a DARPA so, is because I don't so think I DARPA, know. DARPA is the famous uh, uh, unit that invests in, and this is getting into your space, right? That you know, mm. not dual use technology, but truly making seed investments in innovative tech, you know, technologies that perhaps may not find scalable private sector opportunities for decades to come, and as a consequence, mm. the private sector will never make those investments. Now, it. There's no reason why we should only be making those investments in the military space, despite the fact that DARPA investments led to things like the internet and Velcro and so many else, so much else. But we should be making those investments in the healthcare space, particularly in this. You know, uh, if you look at the you know, issues of uh, pharmacological pandemic response, we should also be making those investments um, when when it comes to energy. You know, that, that if we truly want to transition ourselves to a net carbon neutral economy, you, you cannot just rely on the private sector for something like that. Uh, and the, these, the seeds for these types of visions, these concepts, they come out of the military, but they need to, they, they, they can't just stay there. We have to figure out how to you know, put them into other institutions as well. All right, FOMO Sapiens, that's part one of my conversation with Max Rose. We will continue the conversation next week. But in the meantime, if you want to find out more about Max, go check out his website, maxroseforcongress.com, or 
Check out his Instagram. It's at Max Rose for New York. And that is the number four, Max Rose for New York. All right, everybody. See you next week. Until then, take care of yourselves. FOMO Sapiens. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO.